I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the plastic stood up in the air straight away. I was like, wow, this is like, this is the next Crayola. This is going to be huge. What do you want to do with it? More from the founders of Kickstarter success story, Three Doodler Later as we discuss how the 3D printing startup set out to become, in their own words, the next Crayola, and how they're doing as they start their third year in business. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. Now, we start with this week's picks from the UK tech news, uh, but given the length of the interview we've got coming later, we're picking just one, and we're turning to Google I.O., Google's Now on Tap is Android's next killer feature. Already leagues ahead of Apple's Siri in natural language recognition, Google Now's expanded role in Android M could make it the most valuable feature. Not my words, the words of Shaken Stevens. Not really, Jessica Dolcourt at CNET, who is not here, but CNET's Andrew Hoyle is. Hello, Bill Common. Thank now, you. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that came out of Google I.O. There were many, many things to talk about, whether that was yep. Android M, um, whether that was things changing to their uh, consumer offerings, like the big unlimited photo storage and uh, basically the de- the unbundling of all of Google+. Plus. I think we can fairly safely say that Google+, Plus is on its way out. Well, it never really was on its way in, was it? I, I liked it. I was I was a fan, never quite to the extent that I, you know, used it, but I was a... Well, that's the thing, yeah. It's, it's one of those things where everyone says oh yeah it's really nice isn't it do you use it nah i liked it but i didn't use it because nobody else really used it i think what we can see from google io this year which was about two and a half hours or something you know google plus if you are a user of it if you are a business user of it it's fair to say there is not a great deal of need to invest any time or attention into google plus anymore no i definitely think not right however the thing i wanted to pick out of Google's I.O. announcements this year is now on tap. Google Now is a pretty good piece of technology. Um, do you want to explain how it works for you? So Google Now is basically it's a digital assistant, kind of like we've already got with Siri on the iPhone or uh, more recently Cortana on Windows Phone. And it will show you information, things like um, uh, tra- travel time um, to home or to work. It will read your emails. It will um, know your search history, of course, on Google to basically try and bring you information before you've even had to search for it. So if you're at work, it will be able to tell you, oh, there's huge traffic jams on the road. So leave for your meeting early, that sort of thing. Yeah, now it's an app and it's also a widget on Android. Yeah. So it's it's sort of it's kind of a contained experience, you know, you the idea is that it does sit on your home screen on your on your on your Android phone and display something relevant. Yeah. Or you load it up and you see various different cards that maybe things like weather near you, or as you say, traffic jams and stuff like that. But you still have to fire it up. The reason that I think now on tap is so interesting and useful is that it it takes that as a as a baseline yeah but it extends it to sit on top of all of android yeah 
so you you can so i don't know if you press and hold on the, the the home button the idea is yeah when you're in any app you can press and hold on the home button although that could change to different buttons depending on what manufacturers do but theoretically you press and hold on the home button to bring up google now and it will be a lot more context sensitive to whatever app you're currently in now i've got an i've got an example here um you're, you've got an email let's say i've sent you an email yeah and i say Which you do sometimes it happens and i say andy i really want to go and see this uh, amazing uh, new rerunning of a 1978 film made in north korea called salt and it's by a kidnapped director who was forced to make films for Kim Jong-il. You say, brilliant, Nate. That sounds exactly like I'd like to spend my Friday evening. Um, where can we go and see this film? Google Now, uh, now on tap rather, press and hold. It will give you an overlay in the style of a Google Now yeah. card that would say, uh, this is the information about the film. It might show you the genre. It might show you a link to play the trailer on yeah. YouTube. IMDb ratings, anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. And and crucially, it might show you information about where you could go and see that film. Yeah. Um, obviously, that particular film, very difficult to see and probably for good reason. But if it is a more pressing, recent Film. Yeah, and it will work as well if you get um, text messages coming in saying, uh, maybe from from a partner saying, oh, please pick up this on the way home, please do this, or um, remember your meeting. Certain keywords like remember, um, I think when you when you uh, fire up now on tap, it will use those words um, to uh, for, so remember it will maybe bring up the option to set yourself a reminder for later, or it will actually look at um, a certain items listed in a text message and be able to direct you to maybe a shopping app, say the Tesco app or Ocado, something like that, where you can actually buy these things from. You're not having to leave one app to go into Google Now to fire it up to then make do those things. Now, this is, this is the reason I wanted to discuss this in particular, because when Siri launched uh, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, um, when Siri launched, it was... It was this great idea in principle, which was that you would have this virtual assistant that would know or be able to find out contextual information. So you would get things like restaurant availabilities or restaurant reviews, cinema listings, sports results. But when it launched, it it felt extremely US centric. Yeah. And still does. They're, they have They have made steps to integrate things like Yelp. But to me, one of the failings of all of these kind of assistant services is that they have to be baked in by either in the Siri case, Apple and its partners uh, to, to pull in the rights of information um, or Google for Google. Now, this is going to only succeed, in my opinion, this is outside of the US, if it can provide locally relevant, or even hyper-local relevant information. It shouldn't just tell me that something's available at Tesco it sh- or Morrison's, a better shop. Mm-hmm. Um, I say with objectivity, <laughs> if you've ever been to Ealing uh, shopping centers, um, you know, it shouldn't just say that this is available in Morrison's. It should say this is available in the Ealing Broadway branch of Morrison's. Yeah. And this is the local offer and maybe even actual livestock info if you want to get that good. But yeah, And also uh, things like opening times. Exactly. Yeah. Now, historically, that is not something that I have come to expect from these sorts of services. I have come to expect that they will primarily be US first because all of these companies are US and fair enough that they can give a better experience by working with local partners. Um, But they've always basically looked great in demos and then they've pretty much sucked if you aren't American. Yeah. So I really hope that the fact that this is a technology that is 
It can read the text of your email. It can read the text in an app. It can it can work with Google Maps and Google Maps listings. And because Google Maps listings already has excellent local search options, it seems to me that this is more promising than Google even makes out because this is something that out of the door can have real uses for local regions without either Google or its partners having to bake into bake in support from the get-go. Yeah. That's now, am I, am I wrong in feeling that this is very exciting for that reason? It, it definitely is. It definitely is exciting. And it's certainly um, definitely got me excited about finding out what else is in Android M. The question is going to be really how Google actually bakes this into the phone, how useful it is. Because I've got Android, I've, I've used Android, uh, sorry, Android and uh, Google now on Android phones for a long time. And I most of the time find it a bit useless because it, it's doing things like, it, you know, it's just telling me, oh, you know, here's how long it's going to take to get home. Here's what the traffic's doing. Great. But it doesn't seem to realize that I never drive in London. I take the tube and and it never seems to really provide me with all that much information. Something I know that's there, but I never particularly use it. So what I'm going to be interesting to see is how useful having a, a, a much more context sensitive service will be how much more it can read keywords in text or in emails or even things like twitter you know if you set up a quick twitter uh, meeting over twitter say great yeah sounds good let's meet here and then boom now on tap is going to know exactly where you're going it can set a reminder automatically and it can tell you how best to get there if you go to a restaurant it can bring up the menu for you and maybe some reviews that'd be great absolutely i completely agree i mean there's definitely going to be a privacy debate uh on the horizon once this comes out i mean google Android M is a few months away, I think, still. Yeah. Um, we're not going to see this until maybe sort of summer, autumn. Um, and any product Google launches that tries to read your stuff always raises the privacy concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And that then, to me, becomes very interesting because this is still this is still coded and programmed by people. It's automated, um, but it's relying on Google's engineers to figure this out. Yeah. So, on the one hand, it could be brilliant if it can read a lot of your stuff because then it can offer really useful information. On the other hand, if it is still relying on being programmed and not being custom tuned to you, it might be better as a may not incur the same wrath of privacy advocates uh, or scaremongers or what have you, but then may not make it that much better than Microsoft's Cortana well, or Siri. So they're going to have to div decide which way they want to go here, these... either customization and hyper privacy concerns or a bit better than the competition, yeah. but without being too invasive. Well, these these privacy concerns have always been an issue with Google's products. Google now already looks at your email and looks at all your search history and your locations on Google Maps and then brings you the service. The thing is you can turn off all this. If you can turn off history, you can turn off GPS so it's not tracking you. And that's that's your choice. You will be sacrificing a lot of features, but if you really want to turn everything off, then you can do. But it's you know it really depends on what you value more: having a useful service or having these these things done. I mean, it's not a case where one person is sitting reading your email; it's scanning it for keywords, and that's you know it's up to you if you really want that to happen. I personally just don't really care all that much. That's because you're of the generation that doesn't really care more concerned with narcissism and selfies and belfies and and all that sort of stuff i've never taken a belfie no well done well this year is going to be hot for these sorts of tools um we've found out very recently microsoft's cortana is going to be heading to ios and android as well we've obviously got google now that is supported already on ios and on apple and the uh android watch yeah android watch it's android, android wear 
Android Wear. Yep. So this is going to be a really hot year. Andy's face looks like it wants to convey some words before I sign off. It does, yeah, because I wanted to talk quickly about Android Wear um, uh, from Google I.O. because they actually didn't make as big a deal over it as I thought. I am surprised, particularly in light of Apple Watch now having launched, now being such a big deal. Is it because smartwatches are basically pointless? Well, yes, but there's now been so much investment in them that that isn't that they're going to be around for a long time yet. And I was really expecting to see a big push with Android Wear uh, at Google I.O. this year, and we haven't had that. There's not been a discussion of a big update. A couple of features, like being able to draw emojis on the screen, and that's pretty much it. And we didn't see any new products, and we do know that there's a new Samsung one on the way, uh, a new Motorola one as well coming soon, and rumors of a Sony one arriving. No product announcements, and bearing in mind last year, we did get new products and we haven't seen anything um, this time around. Mm. So I am surprised that Google really hasn't featured Android Wear that much. I can't help but think it's because they know that it's a dud. I think all smartwatches are basically duds at this point. I'm, I'm not. I don't care about them. I say I don't care. I don't care. I don't mean they're not important because I don't care. I'm not that arrogant. I mean, <laughs> I don't care about them. And I use that as a, a proxy because I don't see people caring about them other than the people you would expect to care about them. You know, tech journalists, tech industry people and and, you know, early adopters yeah it's easy to see it a bit like google glass when it was but, really sold it for developers but the difference but google is, is glass is on sale now google exactly you can buy this yeah you know i mean i have to i have to wonder why is it i have several smartwatches in this room we're recording yep that you know review devices and things including the apple watch and i'm not wearing any of them no because they don't do anything i need and and I feel as a tech person who buys tons of devices, I just bought one of those super thin MacBooks. Yeah, I don't need one. I just really liked it, so I bought one. Well, that's the thing. I'm waiting. For th- I'm still waiting. I like them. I do wear them. I do wear. Um, I have Apple Watch and have various Android Wear ones as well. I'm still waiting for that major software update to happen that brings in some sort of functionality that makes it an essential wear that I really want to wear it. And I do wear them anyway. I like having notifications coming in when I don't have to look at my phone but still they're not critical and I thought this Google I.O. in light of the Apple Watch and uh, Google would really push out a significant update for Android Wear that would make it really an exciting thing to have and I haven't seen that and I think I mean for me I I agree but something needs to change before they catch on properly because the iPad was the same I remember when that first came out I actually remember there was one day I actually wiped dust off the (laughs) iPad because I realized I have one and I want to have it around, but I don't use it because I have no need to use it. Yeah. And I feel the Apple Watch is going to be the same. But then, as happened with the iPad, something happened. Something came out. What was it on the iPad? Was it just it iPad was an RS? Apps? No, it was an RSS reader uh, called Reader, and <clears throat> it allowed me to use Google Reader offline, and it would cache all of the text and images, and mean that I could because I didn't have three G on the iPad back then. This is yeah, iPad yeah. One or iPad Two, possibly. Wi-Fi only. It meant that I could read all my RSS out of the office, out of home, in a coffee shop, and it would sync back up to the cloud, mm. which stories I'd read, starred, and what have you, and keep it in sync with my uh, my computer. That was the killer thing, and the iPad then became the most essential thing that I have around. The Apple Watch will be the same, and it could be. We know we're getting native Apple Watch apps yeah. quite soon. Um, that's going to be shown off at WWDC, and maybe that that's will... That's in June, isn't it? That's in June, and maybe that will be the impetus maybe that will give developers the ability to create something that can't currently exist and maybe that will give me the 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 desire to wear it you know more than just you know in the office because i'm not always 
staring at my phone, which yeah. is basically what I'm using it for now. I don't keep it on all the time. So we'll see. Um, that was a slight digression we didn't plan, but Andrew Hoyle, CNET.com, thank you for joining. Thank you. In 2013, a project called Three Doodler appeared on crowdfunding website Kickstarter. It advertised itself as the first and only 3D printing pen that allowed artists and creatives to draw in 3D. In its own introductory words, have you ever just wished you could lift your pen off the paper and see your drawing become a real three-dimensional object? Well, now you can. The fledgling company wanted to raise $30,000 to begin with, but its founders didn't expect the response it got. 3Doodler hit its $30,000 target within 3 hours and 38 minutes of launching, and it hit $1 million within just 2 days. As of today, it's raised $2.3 million. In the first of a two-part feature, we'll this week speak to two of the company's three co-founders, Max Bogue and Daniel Cowan, to explore the history of the company, what its unexpected early success allowed it to do, what lessons they learnt on the way and what they're planning as a result in the future. Where, who came up with the idea of 3Doodler and what were the origins there? So the third partner is uh, Peter Dilworth and uh, he's a great inventive mind. Uh, and at the time, uh, Dilworth and I were working, making robotic toy concepts and selling them to the toy industries. And we did about 75 concepts in one year. Um, and we used our 3D printer a lot to make these concepts because we're making robot dinosaurs and stuff like that. Uh, and the 3D printer missed a layer in the process of creating a 14-hour print. And Pete was pretty miffed about it and was like, man, I wish you could just take the nozzle head off of the 3D printer and fill in the missing space and like fix it. You know, why can't you do that? And then we had one of those really dumb aha moments of like, no, wait, why wait, why can't you do that? And we like Googled, like, surely this must exist. Someone has done this. Like, and then we're like, oh, no one's done this. Then the next day we took apart our first three, our first 3D printer and turned it into our first 3Doodler, printing some of the parts beforehand <laughs> to then create the pen. Uh, and it barely worked, but it did work. And we're like, maybe we have something. So we then started iterating and we went through about six or seven iterations uh, visited a factory, um, grabbed Dan, who I knew for a while, and said, I need help um, getting this through to the next stages. Like, I know how to manufacture it and I know how to make it, but I'm not quite sure how to, like, pitch this on, on a platform like Kickstarter. So, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And can you describe a little bit, actually, about um, sort of uh, very briefly what you both do now here, but specifically as well, in more detail, maybe what you were doing beforehand? I know, Max, you've already explained this, but um, maybe, Daniel, you can talk a little bit as well about where you were stolen from, if you like. Stolen from Max's air mattress. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was doing a second round of fundraising for a failing software app. Um, I was in New York. I'd known Max for about seven years, staying on his air mattress, and he showed me this pen. He's like, what do you think of this? And I'm like, well, show me it working. And he lifted it off the paper, and the plastic stood up in the air straight away. I was like, wow, this is, like, this is the next Crayola. This is going to be huge. What do you want to do with it? And that was when we started cooking up what we would do next. So we looked at licensing, we looked at selling it, and then we looked at doing it ourselves, which was the harder route. Like building a company, doing a launch campaign, Kickstarter is tough, but we believed in the product. So we're like, let's just do it. Yeah. So what you, myself, Pete, spread between Boston and New York um, in our apartments, 
like launching a campaign that then took the world by storm. What's the time frame here between, say, you dismantling that original 3D nozzle and the Kickstarter campaign going live? What sort of a time period was, was between that? Yeah, it was, about, it was about eight months. Um, from concept to the stage where we felt ready to approach factories and stuff like that, which we did before the Kickstarter, because you know a lot of people think you just like come up with a concept, build a prototype, and put it on Kickstarter. And a big pitfall in that is you don't know what it's actually going to cost until you've actually brought it to a manufacturer and like costed it out properly. So we didn't even want to do the Kickstarter before we knew that. So yeah, about eight months. I mean, there was definitely a nervousness about waiting too long. Like we sat there at the end of November in 2012. We we're like, let's just do this as soon as we can. And we're like, no, you know what? Let's do it properly. And you're worried, like, you're like, okay, let's take three months, let's plan this out, let's speak to the press properly, let's get the product right, the pitch right. But what if during that period, someone else launches something similar? So you want to do it right, but you're in a race against time. Mm. Okay. And how did that first Kickstarter campaign go? I mean, I know that obviously something of a poster child for Kickstarter success, um, but can you just sort of go through some of the sort of the top line uh, sort of success numbers or stories, if you like, about how well that first campaign went. Half a million dollars on day one. Yeah. Half a million on day two. Yeah. Half a million on day three. And how much were you looking for to begin with? $50,000. Wow. Oh no, $30,000. Sorry. That was uh, the cost of tooling. I mean, that's one of the biggest uh, barriers for manufacturing is you have to pay for these giant pieces of steel. Um, We were totally willing to lose it, money on those first you know, a couple hundred pens uh, in order to get the concept out because we believed that it was an amazing concept. And then, I mean, clearly the video, the concept, people accused us of being wizards and we we learned a new meme, you know, shut up and take my money, which is from Futurama and I should know because I love Futurama, but I had never heard it used in that context. I'm like, is this a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> and like, so I we Googled it. Yeah, we Googled <laughs> it. I rewatched the whole episode. I'm like, oh, it's a good thing. <laughs> so, I mean, you guys are up there with the likes of Pebble in terms of being a sort of a breakout success that, that wildly overachieved effectively in its, its funding campaign. But what did that allow you to do that obviously you hadn't ever budgeted planning on doing to begin with? It, it meant we could be completely independent. So when we started out, we found a factory that was willing to make 2,000 units. And that's a small number for a factory. It's actually extremely rare to find a factory that's willing to do that. And it was kind of a friend favor. <laughs> so. And then we, we left the Kickstarter needing to make 26,000 units, yeah. knowing that we'd get retail orders for tens of thousands more. So it allowed us to, to bring the price down on making the product. It allowed us to get retailers interested. And it allowed us to be completely independent. Like, no need for VC money, no need for debt financing. Like, we could go out there and build a team, hire people that we needed, and just start making a great product. So that was that was the Gen 1 product. Um, you've recently launched 3Doodler 2.0, which is a much smaller, thinner, um, much more final-feeling design. I'm sort of feeling it in my hand, and this one definitely feels much more like a like a large pen, whereas the, the previous one definitely felt more like a more like a staff. Uh, maybe going back to the wizard analogy earlier. Um, so, I mean, how would you describe the other differences about this product? What does this allow you to do that the first one didn't? Um, I mean, besides being seventy-five percent smaller, it has significantly lower power consumption, which allows us to have the accessories like the jet pack, which is a mobile battery pack. Um, it's got a new drive system that has a much smoother extrusion, so you have this continuous flow that's very nice. Um, it has 
a high heat, low heat setting, as well as a, a miniature temperature adjustment. So you can go five degrees this way, five degrees that way, so that more materials uh, are available. You know, we started originally with ABS PLA. We now have ABS PLA flexible. We're releasing a wood filament um, in the summertime, and we have a number of other filaments that we're prepping for release that we're really excited about that this pen is capable of handling. Uh, it also has a handy maintenance hatch in case there are any jams. And one of the biggest things that we got from our consumers is a lot of people were sick of holding down on the button for so long. Now, we never assumed people would be doodling for six hours straight and whatnot. So we added a double click feature in it. So you can double click to have a continuous flow and single click to stop or hold down to pause, which a lot of people love because, you know, we just didn't on the first time, we didn't think people would be using it for such extended periods of time. Like, of course, your hand's going to cramp. If you're just sitting there pressing a button that's definitely one of the bigger things that's a really good example of listening to what consumers are thinking and we we did that from the get-go like we listened to what consumers were saying on kickstarter we listened to what they said when they got the pens and max and i still answer a whole bunch of customer service emails because we were trying to figure out how do we make this really really good how do we make this something that people just won't put down so i mean a lot of the changes are inside as well like max stripped out the entirety of the pen, redesigned the drive system, redesigned like the way the motors work, the heater unit, so that it would just be smoother, easier to use, more reliable. And that that's all from listening to people. I had to be the repair center in the United States uh, for the first six, seven months. Uh, and I repaired, you know, three or four hundred some odd pens that come to my apartment. Uh, I learned a lot from taking it apart and figuring out what people were doing with the pens. And one of the big things that from an engineering perspective that I did is um, the first pen had 26 screws in it. Uh, this pen has two. Mm-hmm. So from my sanity, it's a lot easier to deal with. Um, but yeah. You, you never know the abuse a pen's gonna go through until 10,000 people have it. Yeah, yeah. I imagine. So tell, tell me a little bit about that wood that wood filament. Cause I, I, I've only heard about this, these kind of plastics before now. What does a, what does a wood filament if that is even the term do that that the current plastic doesn't do so uh wood filament the one that we're using is a 20 percent uh sawdust if you will and then the remainder is pla that kind of holds it together with polylactic acid which is a biodegradable substance um what you can do with it is actually quite a lot because you can sand it you can stain it um if you have a crack in your floor uh, you know, that wood putty, mm. why do it with that when I just use the three doodler to fill it in and then you can kind of buff it out. Um, if you want to make a little wooden sculpture or something like that, if you already have made something out of wood and you want to make accoutrement or add to it, the wood filament is kind of perfect for that. Plus it smells like pine so <laughs> <laughs> when you're doodling. It's quite a lot of fun. And there's more to come. I and mean, we have so many ideas for what we can do with materials. Like this, Ocena Max, this is a... It's like a material scientist's wet dream because mm. they've been developing these cool materials for so long using metals in them, using all kinds of other things. And now there's a device that tens of thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people will use and they can put this plastic through it. We'll return to my chat with Max and Dan of 3Doodler in a few minutes to discuss how their small team is growing and hear about what would happen if, or indeed perhaps when, Amazon enters Kickstarter's territory. But first, it's time to climb up the text message 
pear tree and uh, consult the feedback partridge. And this week, clutched between its tiny wings, is a communique from James, who wrote to podcast at natelangson.com with some very kind words about the show. Thank you very much, James. And uh, just because we're short of time today, I'm going to massively paraphrase James's email um, to say that he, he was commenting on a new way of authenticating customers of banks. And he, he said he worked um, at an international uh, bank and was working on ways to authenticate banking customers. And he wanted the facility um, of somebody calling up to to have a system basically determine whether or not a customer was genuine or not using voice recognition, not necessarily the words as you would expect to be recognized on Siri or on uh, the Android equivalents and things, um, but to pick out the voice pattern itself and use that as a way of identification. And I think that it's it's quite an interesting idea. And it reminds me a lot of um, some of the systems that exist to use a phone call, just a vo- simple vocal phone call to determine whether the early signs of Parkinson's are present in a person's voice. And this can actually allow for a diagnosis and treatment to be made a lot faster than it otherwise would. And it's something, it's very simple. It's just a phone call. And the phone the, the system at the end of the phone can actually pick up on the tiny nuances in somebody's voice to work out whether they're showing those early signs of Parkinson's. So I, I think there's a really interesting point from James that there to, to highlight, and I'm very glad he highlighted, that there is work going on in the banking world to use voice pattern recognition as a, another way of identifying whether somebody is genuine or not. And he said he thought he mentioned it as lots of work gets done in this arena, but rarely gets reported. Keep up the good work, James. So thank you very much, James, for pointing that out. It's a really interesting side to... Um, financial authentication that I hadn't thought of before. More feedback to come next week. We didn't have much room this week, I'm afraid, because of the uh, the interviews and things. But do keep it coming. Podcast at natelangson.com. We also now have a Twitter account, at TextMessagePod. Um, it has a very small number of followers because I literally set it up about two hours before recording this. So go in there and get an early followership. Um, be very, very grateful. Uh, hopefully it's just another way of spreading the word about the show. Not everyone in the world is as beautiful as you, dear listener, and not everyone knows how to download a podcast. That's why I'm encouraging you to bring someone you know into the podcasting world by telling them about this show and which app you use to listen to it. You'll be helping not only me and text message, but all podcasters who often need word of mouth more than money to help promote their work. Thanks for listening, and hopefully, thanks for the review and the help spreading the word. Or if you want to be on the show, send your comments about this episode or any other tech topic. Podcast at natelangson.com. We now return to Max and Daniel of Three Doodler to talk about the future of their business, how they're evolving, and what Amazon's entry or potential entry into the crowdfunding space could mean for startups. We continue with me asking the pair how large their team has become as they enter their third year of business. How, how big is your team now? I mean, you've just described being a kind of repair agent, repairing hundreds of units, and obviously you're literally very hands-on with, with this product. I mean, we spent the first year after the launch still in apartments, um, and we hired like two or three more people. Um, 
now recently, you know, we got a proper office and we actually have, we were about 12 people last so, year. Globally, globally now, now we're like 20 part timers, we're at like between 15 and 20. Yeah. So there's a core team of about 15 and then we have some great customer service folks who are part time. I see. So it's quite quite an expansion actually, but still relatively modest. It will probably sound relatively modest to some people who yeah. are used to startups being in, yeah. you know, the tens or hundreds of people. But you're still doing this with, you know, it, to me, what feels like quite a nimble number of staff. Yeah, I believe in slow growth. Um, I've seen a lot of companies do exactly that, where they overexpand too quickly, and you know, you're only capable of managing so many people. And if you have so many people that you're spending all your time managing them, then you lose sight of actually working on the product. And that's just something I can't do. <laughs> or, or worse, you spend more than you're earning. Yeah. And we're not VC-backed, we're not bank-backed. So you know, last year, we didn't know what the numbers would be like. We wanted to do 100,000 pens. We ended up doing 130,000, which was awesome. But that may not have happened. There may have been some other issue. And like even this year, we have forecasts in mind. But you've got to make sure that everyone on your team can stay on mm-hmm. and that you're growing at the right pace. So 130,000 pens with a staff of between 15 and 20, and you're selling worldwide. So last year was less people. Um, I think this year we'll probably do between three and 400,000 with oh. Touchwood, yeah, <laughs> Touchwood filament, yeah. Um, with between 15 and 20 people. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, no, and no VC, which I, to talk about on a business side, I mean, one of the big advantages, obviously, of having VC and having the right VC is that they're also there as mentors, as guidance. They're people you can refer to for advice. Um, you don't have that. We have a board, um, and we do have a couple advisors. Uh, they're all people that, I mean, just help us out. And we had a lot of help um, from a lot of different places. Uh, and part of that has been built into us. And we also end up spending a lot of our side time helping out other companies because we were helped out so much. So um, we do have actually a lot more saged advice than than we think we would get if we actually had a VC. Because the VC, you have one loud voice that you really need to listen to. And they, they probably know what they're talking about, otherwise they wouldn't be doing this with 100 off some other companies. But they're also doing it with 100 odd some other companies. And their goal is to take your company and make it into a billion dollar company or something like that. And they expect 90 some odd percent of the companies that they're advising to die. Um, whereas I think a lot of our advisors are more about are you doing it right? Are you making money? Because that's what's important. Control your growth, control your spend, make those choices. And remember that the goal here is to be profitable and not to expand rapidly. Mm. So, And how important is Kickstarter to you now? Obviously, you, you, you've just had another very successful campaign, um, sort of got a bit of a track record for doing this now, I guess. But how, how, how essential is that? I mean, could you, do you need Kickstarter still to, to keep doing what you're doing? So the, the second campaign was an interesting one and we, we debated whether to do it or not. And like we said at the time, we really wanted to go back to those people that had supported us first time around. Like we did it at an unusual time of year. It was a very short campaign. So we wanted them to have first stab at the new pen. And the response was amazing. And if we look at our numbers, I think about 30% of people had backed us first time around. So it was our way of saying thanks. And they got a bunch of extras for that. Um, did we need Kickstarter per se? No, but at the same time, it's a great audience to have on day one. Like that's where creative people go to launch projects. It's where creative and tech savvy people go to buy products. And having them being, being the first people that would use the pen is amazing for us. And I guess there's a feedback element there as well, which you sort of mentioned, alluded to before, that you have such a vocal community that yeah. effectively they're sort of like a distributed VC on the advice level at least. 
Yeah, as well as they're great at testing. Um, so, I mean, we find out a lot of stuff. I mean, with any product that you make it, uh, there's the first batch of it has things that you weren't expecting and things you can't see until you make thousands of something. You know, maybe it occurs one in every 500 or one in every thousand. And once you start getting it out to a community like that, who's very vocal, they can give you that feedback that you really need so that when it enters the retail market, those consumers have very clear expectations where I feel like the Kickstarter community is a little more forgiving. Um, they know it's a project. They know it's like a startup-y feel. Um, and so they're more willing to give you that feedback as well as be like, so now, like, improve it, please. <laughs> you know? And we don't ever want to lose that connection. Like, there are artists that we discovered on the first Kickstarter who we're still personally in touch with and who try out new plastics, try out new prototypes. And I think if we just focus on retail and we just focus on building a company and we forget you know, the excitement of the community that helped started this off, we'll be losing a part of the company. Mm. And what's the biggest risk to a Kickstarter business um, in the present day? I mean, I've had a conversation with somebody on the Indiegogo side once, another crowdfunding platform, for those unaware, that have said that one of the problems with the popularity is that it basically then distributes that that potential investment over a much wider number of projects and therefore fewer projects get the funding. Obviously that hasn't been an issue for you guys, but are there any similar issues that you've come across um, that have been problematic or could be problematic for others? I just don't know if I agree with that. Like even before we talk about what's problematic, I think if a product's great and the creators look like they can execute on it, people will get behind it. Like, Specifically this comment came from, uh, from a musician who was, the conversation was about using Indiegogo as a way of, of crowdfunding a, a new studio release. And his comment was, we're not sure we would do this again in future because there are so many bands now doing it that the available money from that fan base is being spread too thin to make it sustainable. So maybe that's different for a product like, like yours and maybe quite specific to a music platform. Um, but that was, that was at least their reason for not doing it again. Whereas by the sounds yeah. of it, you would continue doing this. And I think that the biggest risk they face is that they put a lot of time and effort into it and then it doesn't succeed and you can't get that time and effort back. Um, I've always had this theory though that long term a couple of things will happen and one is that crowdfunding will end up getting segmented. So they end up being crowdfunding platforms just for music or just for books or just for tech products because as you get more and more people are going to find it hard to look for their interests on a certain platform. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if in a few years time there is just like a performing arts or like a music release based crowdfunding platform mm. and they'll stand out more there. Mm. Go right back to its beginnings. Yeah, completely. Kickstarter started out as mainly focused on music and art, and then uh, they allowed a couple hardware projects on, and they're yeah. like, okay. <laughs> my, my other big theory is that Amazon will set up a crowdfunding platform. Yeah, because they can help a company do everything. They can help them with all fulfillment and all payment processing. So the only thing missing is making the product. So why would Amazon not jump into that space? Yeah, logistics I think is one of the biggest pitfalls that a lot of people don't see coming. Um, even if you have a few hundred backers and you need to ship them a physical item that is still a huge amount of effort and time to do that I mean you're not you know when it gets to a thousand you're not going to do that yourself like even if you're dedicated and whatnot and you often misgauge the cost you know shipping something from the United States to the UK for example and there's VAT and import tax and handling and customs and you're never like fully aware and different people different requirements so a lot of people get tripped up on shipping we we got it wrong yeah. um people think we ran perfect campaigns and there's plenty of little things that we missed because you can't when you're three people spread between two cities 
think of absolutely everything. You can't calculate every cost. The failure always is important for situations like that because you learn from that and you, you, you notice that's a pitfall and then you don't fall down it again. Yeah. You know, it's the fail, fail fast, but fail, fail often and fail fast. Yeah. But, you know, don't keep failing. You just fail create, smart. You've got to hope it's not a critical failure. Yeah. Like it's one that you can recover from and learn from. And do you think if Amazon was to enter this in marketplace, do you think that would be a good thing for the industry or would it basically do what Amazon did for bookstores and get a lot of indie sellers fearing for the future of their business? I think it's different since in this case it's all web, right? Like It's not like there's a shop somewhere that's a Kickstarter thing that's going to be taken out of business. Um, I think it offers a more opportunity and more abilities. And I think as Dan says, like other companies will just become more niche if that type of thing happens and then you just go to Amazon because it's like the big one and because like you know right now Kickstarter is limited to certain countries Indiegogo has its limitations so like maybe those limitations get solved but I don't think it's going to really gut out everyone there's enough room in this market to actually expand pretty aggressively and um, I think the real key is for everyone to realize that and not to kind of pick at each other because that's where it's just not good. If you're, oh, they're no good and, and we're better, it's like, why are you wasting your energy on that when you could be like trying to attract new customers that don't know about this whole stuff? Amazon's perfect if you're a late stage product, like you're ready to ship. That's, that's where they're ideal. And I think Kickstarter was once upon a time perfect if people didn't mind waiting six months or even a year. Um, but I think the gap's closing. People now, as the Kickstarter audience gets bigger, they're treating it like Amazon. And they're like, where's my product? Why isn't it shipping next week? And for those products that can ship next week or next month, I wouldn't be surprised if that migrates somewhere else. I'm curious about your long-term ambition. Obviously, your ambitions initially were to create something that could do a more accurate job than a 3D printer and could be <laughs> some sort of a, 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 a gap-filling product. That turned into being a, a Kickstarter success story. You're now very much, by the sounds of it, trying to be... Uh, aiming to be the next Crayola uh, in a sort of digital world, which I think is a very interesting and, and possibly very doable ambition given the success so far. Um, but how far does that go? What is, what's the long-term ambition now based on this amazing momentum and, and success you've had thus far? We, we always uh, said at the beginning that we had a five-year plan on the product roadmap. Um, this is really like year two. So there's still three more years of some really amazing products uh, that we have and that I'm working on and developing uh, as we speak. And I'm very excited to see some of the innovations that we have planned to release over the next couple of years that I think will expand this even more and make it even more accessible to people um, to make creative things physically. Uh, the creation of physical objects by hand out of kind of thin air, if you will, um, is really kind of the essence of like the maker movement and whatnot and to have a simple tool uh, that you can use that to do that almost like a Dremel um, except that you don't need the block of wood you're doing the reverse is just endless possibilities and we're just gonna keep on working on those endless possibilities and then from a market point of view I think as we went into the Kickstarter we saw this being big in like hobby design arts and craft but since then we've seen it being used like for pre-prototyping in architecture firms we've seen a big pickup in education um, a result of that is that we're bringing out an educational bundle literally in a month that's going to have 12 pens, a bunch of plastic accessories. And the response from schools and universities, libraries um, and museums to that has been amazing. 
Are there any institutions in the UK that you can talk about that, you've, that you're planning on working with? So we, we did a really interesting case study with St Augustine's, um, a high school up near Birmingham. Um, we've been working recently with St Martin's as well. Uh, they love the pen. They've done some workshops with it. There's a few, few more that we're working on, um, including some engineering firms that are trying it for like a, a business use case. Mm-hmm. So there's, I think as we identify more use cases, we're looking at how we can expand on that and how we can make the pen even more useful to more people. Great. So if anyone listening on a phone, on a laptop, they've got a browser open, they want to find more, where's the best place to go right now? The3doodler.com. Thank you to today's guests, Max and Daniel from 3Doodler, and earlier, Andrew Hoyle at cnet.com. Please keep your feedback coming to podcast at natelangston.com or at textmessagepod on Twitter, our new Twitter home. Very excited about that. And we will see you for part two of our crowdfunding business feature next week. Thanks for listening to Text Message, a weekly free podcast produced, edited and funded by me, Nate Langston. Don't forget, you can help so much by bringing someone you know into the podcasting world by telling them about this show and which app you use to listen to it. From the Corner Studio in my house in Ealing, London, thanks again for listening and for any help in spreading the word. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.